Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of changemakers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be speaking with Shara Roman. Shara is an award-winning founder and CEO of the Silverine Group, which is a culture consulting firm that aligns people, strategy, and culture to optimize organizational performance. In this conversation, we spent our time talking about her book, The Conscious Workplace, Fortify Your Culture to Thrive in Any Crisis. I really enjoyed the conversation, most especially because I believe the level of disruption we have been facing will continue. Therefore, it's important for us to learn how to create the kind of culture that can be inclusive and thrive through ongoing crisis. And Shara shares a lot of great stories, examples, and insights with respect to that. I also enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahan at mahantavakoli.com. There's also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. Really enjoy getting those voice messages. Now here's my conversation with Shara Roman. Shara Roman, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Mahan, I am thrilled to be here. Just so excited to talk about culture and all the great things that go along with it. Can't wait to talk about the conscious workplace. Fortify your culture to thrive in any crisis. We've been through a crisis. I think we will be going through many more crises in the coming years. You touch on it in the book also. But before we get to talking about organizational culture, would love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted who you've become, Shara. Yeah, thanks, Mahan. I love this question. And not everyone realizes that it often takes quite a bit of time to explain where I've come from. But I was born in Bombay, India, and my family moved to Lagos, Nigeria when I was a toddler. Grew up in Lagos, did my elementary school years there, then went back to Bombay, did middle school for a couple of years, lived with my grandparents. And that was a pretty pivotal moment for me, a pretty traumatic moment in some ways, because I was separated from my parents at a fairly early age. And then my grandmother, who I was very close to, realized that living in India was not going to be the right place for me. So she helped me get to school in England. So I did my high school in England. Then went back to Nigeria after I finished high school. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, the story continues. (laughs) And I was supposed to be on a gap year and I was going to ponder where I wanted to go to university and all that kind of fun stuff. And as what they say about best laid plans, I met my husband, who at the time was an active duty Marine. He is a Puerto Rican by way of New York and ended up in Lagos, Nigeria. We meet, we fall in love, totally not in the plan end up moving to Greece, living in Greece, getting married and coming to the US. All of that to say that I grew up in many different countries, lived in different countries, traveled a lot. And all of that really instilled a sense of curiosity in me, a desire to learn about others and to really build bridges and to look for commonalities. Because even as a young woman, you want to feel like you belong. You want to feel like you're part of the tribe. And 
moving around a lot and changing my surroundings certainly made me more resilient, made me more independent. And it also made me appreciate the richness that comes from all the different walks of life that are out there. The other important thing I think that is part of who I am is I didn't grow up in a very traditional Indian household. My family is Zoroastrian. So they are ancestry is from Persia. And the Parsis, as they're known in Bombay, are a little bit more independent. It's a very small community, more Western than many of the Hindus and Muslims and others that live there. So they don't hold on to the traditionalism. My grandparents, my dad's parents divorced in the 50s, pretty unheard of, maybe even in the United States. My two aunts and my mom has two sisters and both of her sisters got divorced they raise kids, single parents. So no one subscribed to stereotypical male-female roles. It was a lot of girl power, always felt encouraged and supported to do what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, how I wanted to do it, to find my voice, to be authentic. Questioning the status quo and doing the way things are has just been a part of who I am and what I bring to the table. What an outstanding journey you've had. There are so many sidetracks I can take with this, Shara. Everything from the fact that my many trips to India and to Bombay, I fell in love with the Parsi community and loved the restaurants. As Iranian-American, I had special fascination for the Parsis and the culture there. But also you moving around to all these different places, you said made you a lot more resilient and able to fit in with the different cultures that you had to live in. How were you able to do that? You didn't have a manual of how to (laughs) adjust and adapt to the different cultures. How were you able to do that? Yeah, I think for me, it was quickly learning that I had to ask questions and I had to be curious about how other people lived, the food they ate, how they ate it, the music they listened to, the dancing that they might have done. I remember even as a little girl growing up in Lagos, we had help in the house, but I would always, when my mom was napping, I would run out of the house to the back where our maid lived and I would eat with her. I had just eaten my lunch and I would eat the lunch that they had prepared, which was way more interesting and way more spicy. I just got exposed to that, like being curious about what they did and how she'd spend that afternoon combing her daughter's hair and in little braids. That was just part of how I did. So it was being curious. It was asking questions. It was experiencing and not judging, but also sharing about myself. Because the more that you ask questions and you invest that time in getting to know other people and why they like Queen or whatever the music they might have been listening to, the more then they want to know about you. And it becomes that sort of natural give and take. And I felt that I could fit in, but really be who I was. I didn't have to compromise so much or change. And of course, Not to say that I never did that as a teenage girl living in England. There's a lot happening between the years of 14 and 17. But I feel like it allowed me to be stronger and to really understand who I was. One of the points that you mentioned is that need for curiosity In talking about culture, you also referenced that a change in mindset from a judging mindset and a fixed mindset to a curious and growth mindset. What I see, Shara, is 
if we were to go to the typical organization and ask the leaders of the organization whether they have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset, everyone would say, oh, I have a growth mindset, definitely. What is a growth mindset as opposed to this judging and fixed mindset? And what determines whether people have the growth mindset or maybe they should reassess in trying to find more of that growth mindset and curiosity? So let's just be clear. The growth mindset is not about growing the top line or the bottom line or growing in (laughs) revenue or employees is what you hear. Well, of course I have this growth mindset, but a growth mindset is really coming into the world with knowing that you don't have all of the answers, with knowing that there is power in sharing power and understanding that there is power in the collective versus the individual. There's a few different mindsets and shifts we talk about in the book, but I think particularly in this country, in the U.S., in the Western world, we approach life, I think, from a scarcity mindset. In order for me to win, you have to lose. And when you are really shifting into a growth mindset, you're recognizing that there is enough for everybody and that you all can win. And if you think about, my boss actually used to say this over at CGI, he'd always say, Shara, it's not about taking a bigger piece of the pie. It's about making the pie bigger. So we can all benefit from that. And so that's what I think about as a growth mindset is how do you make it better so that everybody can succeed? So power needs to be shared in an organization, super scary for people. That means that you can let people make decisions. You can give people information. You can be more transparent with what you're doing so that then everybody is informed and you can have those discussions. It's not about debate. It's really about good discussion and laying out the pros and cons versus, again, in a debate, it's who wins, who gets their point across more succinctly, who's you know potentially the better orator. And those are not necessarily the signs of success or victory. So it's shifting from this win-lose mentality to a win-win mentality. It's shifting from thinking about your personal problems are just your problems and they need to be checked at the door, which is a very old mindset that I certainly grew up with here. But in order for us to really allow ourselves, our organizations to grow and for us as individuals to be open to that, we have to recognize that everyone is coming in with their unique stories and situations and they need to be able to bring their whole kind of beings into the workplace. And I just shared my personal story. I can't leave any part of that at home. That's who I am. That's the fabric of what I'm going to bring to the table every day. Last couple of things is that I think in terms of a growth mindset is that leaders need to understand that they're no longer experts and that really they are facilitators of the conversation and they need to speak less and really listen more and allow that dialogue to happen And to recognize that questions actually get you to a better place. When I talk with clients, I say, when we have kids at home and we have toddlers, they're asking all these questions around why. And most of the time we answer them. Sometimes we get frustrated, but in the workplace, we shut that down. And we're just like, well, just do what I tell you to do. Well, that's not always the right answer. Shara, I wonder, you were mentioning the fact that leaders need to be willing to allow their team members and others to engage, to own decision-making and move on. Just before we started recording, I was having a conversation with the CEO of an organization that I work with. And 
he was saying, I'm accountable to the board. Part of his difficulty is letting go of some of that because he feels at the end of the day accountable. How do you balance accountability with enabling others to own the decisions? You know, your CEO is right. The buck ultimately stops with him. But it's the analogy I often use is if you do things for your kids, they'll never learn to do it for themselves. So in the workplace, yeah, there are certain decisions that absolutely need to be made at the top that are going to have huge consequences. And it's not an all or nothing. There are a cascading of a series of decisions that you start to build trust in individuals and pushing down that accountability. It could be budget authority that is given to someone instead of having to get permission. Like literally, I worked with a client that in order for the manager to bring in cupcakes, 24 cupcakes that might have cost them 50 or 60 bucks, they had to get permission. And that's a real story from three or four years ago. And if you can just say to a manager, here's a budget that you have, use it as you see fit. And then if they make mistakes, you can correct it, but you've got those guardrails of 5000 or 10000 or $20,000. So it's about putting up those guardrails, letting people experiment, learning if they've made mistakes and growing. And that goes back to that growth mindset. We grow through making mistakes. And so mistakes are good things that we want to learn from and talk about. And of course, yes, yeah, so if you're going to go buy a company for $10 billion, that is not a democratic decision. That is a decision that's going to be made by the CEO, by a group of people who are doing the M&A. And they're going to be very serious and meticulous about that decision. But Overall, there are thousands and thousands of decisions that get done every day. And so that's where I think you have to let go of those things and you don't have to be providing oversight on every single line item. I love the way you put it, which is framing it with respect to guardrails. And within those guardrails, people are allowed to make the decisions and then own up to the decisions and be accountable. At times though, when people do that, there end up being mistakes, problems, and issues. You talk a lot about the kind of culture and the importance of culture to the success of the business and serving as a cornerstone. What role do mistakes play within those guardrails in the kind of cultures that are important to thrive as organizations go through future crises? Yeah, I think mistakes are absolutely important. That's how we innovate. We collaborate, think through, make mistakes, learn and grow. I'm trying to think of a couple of different clients or research that we did, but one of the organizations that we looked at that really pivoted very well during the pandemic is a company called Lisa, which is a mattress company. And they were always a nice place to work and connected to their community, but they wanted to bring hospital beds to hospitals that were in crisis and needing more beds for patients during COVID. And so they were able to take a nine-month cycle of building a bed, creating a bed, and shortening it to three weeks. Now, they did that by involving and democratizing that decision-making, letting people experiment, letting employees who had not been a part of the decision-making be a part of how do we really solve this problem? And so they were very quickly able to do that and make mistakes along the way, fix things, collaborate, just churn through that innovation cycle and get to the other end. So 
mistakes are a huge part of a growth culture. It's a huge part of culture of innovation, but mistakes when they are recognized as learning opportunities. I've certainly been in companies as an employee, and I've been in companies as a consultant where someone makes a mistake and they're either put in the penalty box for the rest of their lives or they're fired even. I've been reading some stuff about Elon Musk and Twitter and how he handles that. And then there are places where you screw up and you learn and you work through it. I've personally made mistakes along the way. And one of the biggest mistakes I think that I've made, I made a lot along the way, was actually in my early 20s. When I first came here, I was first married. I decided I was going to be a real estate tycoon and an insurance sales tycoon. And I had what I believed was going to make me successful was being really good functionally at the work. I was going to know everything I needed to know about real estate. I was going to need to know everything about insurance and mutual fund sales. And that was actually not at all what I needed. It was all about relationships. It was all about networking. It was all about cultivating that. Well, I flamed out in about 14 months. Needless to say, the market was also really bad at the time, but I flamed out. But what did I learn? I learned that I needed to really network and I really couldn't come at this from being the expert, but that I really needed to rely on a lot of other people. I may not have known it in that exact moment, but when I started the business seven years ago, the Silvering Group, I knew that. And before I did anything, I talked to a whole bunch of people. So mistakes, they really are, if you can put those into that learning context and you can feel safe at work to do that. I love that, Shara, most specifically because I talk a lot about the fact that leadership is example and you are a leader in the example that you just shared. One of the things that I tell the leaders that I work with is if you want people to own up to their mistakes, have the humility to <laughs> talk about your own mistakes and what you learn from them. So yeah. I love the fact that, yes, you have written this book, but you shared a mistake that you made and a lesson you learned from it. And that sets the culture for a team to say it's okay. People understand we are flawed individuals anyway. We might as well be willing to admit it exactly, and what we learn from it and move on. So that's a big part of culture. And I love the fact that you didn't only talk about it, but you shared a specific example and showed this is the kind of leadership people like to see. That sets the culture and you keep talking about intentionality and the importance of intentionality behind having the right culture. How can teams and organizations intentionally have the kind of culture that it takes to thrive? Great question. So the first thing I will say is that if you aren't intentional with a culture, you will end up with a culture that you don't want because we all have a culture. And so you do need to be intentional and you do need to think about what is going to work for your organization. And the second thing I'll say before I get into what helps organizations thrive is that you can't copy someone else's culture. And you can't go surfing and saying, oh, Google does this and so does this. Quick side story, the whole Google culture. I walked into a client's office several years ago and they had ping pong tables and foosball and all the bells and whistles. And as we were talking about how they needed help, they're like, yeah, no one's using this game room. Come to find out that 
As we did our assessment, we get in there talking with the staff and doing focus groups and doing surveys and all this stuff, is that the moment you went in there, you got punished. You got bad looks from your manager. You got questioned, where were you? Why were you playing games? The reason Google was successful 10 years ago, that set up is because that's how work got done. Like the golf course, but the more modern version of, or the frat boy version or whatever it is of the golf course, right? So you have to really be intentional on what are you going to do? Why are you going to do it? So what I've seen is A, you do need to be conscious. You do need to think about is what you say, what you do. And people are very discerning and quite candidly, millennials and Gen Zs in particular are super particular about that. They're going to call you out. They're going to cancel you. We can get into a whole conversation about cancel culture, but they want to see that you're going to actually walk the talk. So don't say that you have diversity or you value diversity and inclusion, but you go to the website and seven white men and one brown woman on the leadership team. And you know what I'm talking about. So you do really have to be conscious and intentional and really think about how you want to design the culture for your organization. Secondly, you need to really create a sense of community. Because particularly in this world where we are spread out, whether we're virtual, fully hybrid, all in the office, and everything in between, we're more global. And this has been a trend that's been happening for some time. The pandemic just accelerated. When you create community, you're creating a sense of purpose and connection that connects people's inner purpose with the purpose of the organization and makes them feel a part of something bigger than themselves. So the Navy has a purpose or the Marine Corps has a purpose, but that purpose doesn't gel for me. I'm not necessarily a service-oriented person. I don't want to put my life at risk <laughs> to save the world. Sorry, not me. So you can't just say that, oh, this is great purpose and people are going to automatically connect. It has to be something that they feel strongly about. The second one is around really nurturing talent. And I used that phrase, or and I really thought about what are the words I want to use? I had a lot of different sort of phrases that evolved over time. But nurturing talent is intentionally used because you really want to think about who do you have on the team? How do you build a team that has different strengths? And then how do you get everyone for you as the manager to help them understand and to have a conversation around what do they really bring and what do they want to leverage as a strength in the workplace? How can you harness that? How can you connect it? And how do you make sure all the pieces really work? And I love it when I look at teams and you don't need to have a superstar on the team. You need to work with the people you have, help them learn, help them grow, help connect through mentoring, through sponsorship, through all of those things. And you want to create that space where people can improve their skills and improve their contributions and see that connection. And the last piece is around ownership. I always think about actually the stories that my mom told me about how I acted as a little girl, that I was very independent at a very young age. I was a year and a half and I wanted to put my own shoes on. I wanted to put the own buckle on. I wanted to pick my own clothes. And I saw this in my kids too. And it's not that just we're so special. As humans, we crave a sense of autonomy and independence. And so when you create a sense of ownership, whether it's through sharing the profits of the organization, whether it's through decision-making, whether it's through accountability, all of those elements of ownership 
you can actually create that kind of culture where people feel almost just as vested as you as the founder or the business owner or the CEO. You and I both have our own businesses. You know that I spend, I think, every waking minute and probably half my sleeping minutes <laughs> thinking about the business. Not healthy, I know, but it's like my kid. So we do that. And when you create that kind of environment where people are just as vested or almost just as vested in the success of the organization because you're letting them direct their own path, then you're going to get that great culture. So it sounds very simple, but it comes to life in very different ways for every organization. So I want to unpack that a little bit there, Shara. would love to eventually then come back to this sense of ownership, which is a big challenge that I hear from many executives and leaders in organizations. But you mentioned a lot of great perspectives with respect to how intentional leaders can be with respect to the culture. One of the concerns that sometimes I hear from leaders or podcast listeners write in, they say, my God, this is going to take full time all the time. So how do I do this? That's one of their big questions is how much time when already overstretched, over anxious, have more work than I know what to do with, how much time, effort, focus should I be placing on culture, whether the CEO of our organization or many instances is team leaders that want to make sure that they have a good culture within their team. What are your thoughts and perspectives with respect to the effort and time that culture takes as opposed to doing other things that are part of moving the business or the organization's agenda forward too? I know many of your other podcast speakers have talked about this. There is no magic bullet for culture. It's like losing weight or getting in shape. I'd like to look like JLo. She and I are the same age, but you know what? I'm not willing to work out four hours a day every day. So it's on me that I don't have abs that look like her abs. But this is the same thing with culture. If you really want a great culture, you're going to have to decide that you're going to prioritize it. And my sort of premise is that if you put your people, the purpose first, the culture comes along with that, you're going to end up achieving the goals that you want in terms of your revenue, in terms of your profitability. So it is shifting that mindset and really ensuring that your foundation is right and that you are putting in all the right ingredients to get where you want to go. But it's like a risotto as an example. Don't know why I'm going there, but got to keep stirring it to get just the right consistency and texture. You can't just throw it in a pot and walk away that you might be able to do if you're boiling basmati rice as an example for 18 minutes or whatever. So it does take time and you do have to prioritize it and you have to realize and we've heard all these quotes of culture eating strategy for breakfast, lunch and dinner. It is true. And one of the things too, Mahan, is that many companies have achieved success in spite of not having a great culture. And what I would love for people to just pontificate on for a minute is what if I actually did things where I put people first? where I really created this deep sense of community, where I really nurtured that talent and did all those things. What exponential benefits would I get as a result of that? And I think that's the challenge when you're having success. It's hard to then do something that you don't see as worth it. But what happens in situations when we have situations of crisis 
is if you have a culture that's made out of a house of cards or an organization that's made out of a house of cards because you've been focused externally, then it all starts to collapse. And we've been very lucky that for the most part, we've lived in kind of growth times. But if you think about the percentage of companies that existed in the past on Fortune 500, back when it was created and who exists today, it's something like 10 or 12 companies that still exist. Yeah, they were successful for a really long time, but now they've been eaten up, gobbled up, disappeared, whatever. So you do have to make time. And an organization that I think has been very intentional, they're a small startup. I actually sit on their advisory board. It's a company called Enabled Intelligence. They are an AI firm. And the CEO is a tech guy. He's a GovCon tech guy, super smart, but he saw an opportunity in the AI space of working with the Intel market. And he realized too, that he needed to get cleared people who could sit there and focus and do the work of annotation. So it's very repetitive work. But he said, how do I solve this problem? How do I get the talent that I need? And how do I build a culture that's going to allow them to thrive? And that drove his work. And so almost 50% or maybe it's even more than 50% of his workforce are people with neuro disabilities. And he has created this culture where they do performance management differently. They put a lot of breaks in so that people can, can step away, train their managers excessively. They've managed to do it. They're raising money. They're growing. So if you start with that mindset of, hey, I'm going to put this work in and really get this right, that all these other things come. What a great couple of examples in that it takes effort. It is not just wishing it. Whether you want to look like <laughs> J-Lo, it's not just wishing it and saying, yes, it's important. It's putting the effort in on a consistent daily basis, whether it's with respect to exercise or the diet, or the same thing with respect to the culture and the intentional culture is not just something that once a year or once every couple of years, exactly. we come up with, this is what we want our culture to be. There is a consistent effort that needs to go into it. And the AI company that you mentioned is a great example of that consistent effort, including the training for the managers, which is a critical part of it, Shara. One of the challenges that I see in many organizations is that many of the mid-level managers don't have the training and capability to support the culture that has been intentionally planned, but it's not intentionally lived. So it's important to do that training and development to support that intentional culture. For sure. And on that note of the managers, we've actually done our middle managers a huge disservice. Back in the 80s and the 90s, when we started to cut out those hierarchical layers because we wanted to flatten the organization and cut costs, we basically took away the people who were caring for their employees. And so now we've got these theoretically flat organizations, but they still have all of the hierarchy and the bureaucracy that existed from the 1950s. We haven't really modernized how we work, how we lead, how we just run our businesses. And so now what you have are these player coaches and you have managers who literally are doing the job of managing and leading on the side of their desk. And this is what we see time and time again when we go in. And I'm sure you see it as well, that managers have 
barely any time. They can barely get their work done, their functional work done. Then the way we've sort of constructed this is the way you get promoted is to be a manager and have people. So they throw a bunch of people underneath them, get them the title and they're not equipped. They don't have the time and the space to do their work. Everybody suffers. You get burnout. You aren't getting productivity because people are working around the clock. And so you're actually just like fueling this very vicious cycle that we're in. And the time is just so ripe to radically rethink how we structure our work, our companies, how we think about what it means to lead and to manage. This is the time. It is. And Axios had a report on the level of anxiety, which is at an extreme high, specifically at the mid to upper management levels. I interact with a lot of managers that tell me I don't really have the time to meet with every one of my direct reports every week. And I tell them, well, you have too many direct reports. But as you said, there are these player coaches. I feel like in many organizations, we have become so efficient the same way the supply chain had become efficient, where with the smallest issues in the supply chain, there were huge problems. That's the same thing in organizations. So that middle management level is really important to nurturing the right kind of culture. Another thing you mentioned that I want to touch on, you talked about that ownership mentality. And I wanted to see what are things that leaders, whether at the senior levels of the organization or mid-level managers, can do to foster an ownership mentality in their teams. I think there's a lot. We talked a little bit about distributing decision-making in the organization. We talked a little bit about exploring models, or I mentioned an ESOP, but you can look at commissions, you can look at bonus-based incentives, you can look at profit sharing, you can look at employee stock ownership. Fun fact, companies that are ESOPs tend to outperform those that are not. So there's a lot of that sort of financial piece. But I think even just at a manager level, you can empower them so they can come up with their own ideas. Oftentimes, we want to tell our people what to do, and then we also want to tell them how to do it. And we don't need to tell people how to do it. What we need to say to folks is, here's what I need you to get done. I need this report by five o'clock tomorrow, or I want you to come up with a mock idea for this new product by the end of next week. But you don't need it to prescribe to them. Empowering them and giving them autonomy over their own work is, I think, one very good idea. The other is to really connect them back to the why and connecting that inner purpose and that outer purpose and why they're doing it. Oftentimes, again, people throw things over the transom and say, I need you to get this to me by tomorrow. Why do you need it by tomorrow? What's the relevance of this document? Or here's this report we've been doing this way. What do you use this report for? Because I actually might be able to give you something else when you need it as opposed to going through these machinations of this report. So rooting it in the why. I mentioned letting them choose the how. And then the delegation and the trust. Delegation is such a bane of managers and leaders, even at the very highest levels. They tend to have their go-to people. They keep giving more and more of the same stuff to the go-to people (laughs) who end up getting burned out. 
And they're like, well, I don't trust anyone else to do it. How do you know you don't trust them if you don't give other people an opportunity? So really try to find other people to give the work to do and to trust them. And again, it's sort of those guardrails you talked about. Give them something little, see how they do. And you can keep working it that way. And if you're just, again, not to overuse the word intentional, but if you're just intentional about how you're distributing work, what you're doing with work, really thinking about ownership, you can have it done. It doesn't have to be this sort of big thing. When we're talking about ownership, we're not talking about giving away 80% of your company. It doesn't have to be that. People can just own little parts of what they do and how they contribute to the organization. And then you have to hold people accountable. Accountability is not throwing them under the bus or screaming at them, but it is saying, okay, you didn't get this done, or there were a lot of mistakes. Let's talk through what happened. Maybe this was not something that played to your strengths. Please don't give me any detailed spreadsheets to look at because I can probably get it done, but not going to be the best work that I do. Shara, actually, that's one of the things that my solo episode in November was about that accountability because with the clients that I interact with, it's one of the biggest challenges that many of them have where there is a lack of accountability, but part of that lack of accountability is what we were talking about earlier. There isn't that consistent touch point to give people the feedback and hold them accountable which is an important part of that ownership mentality. Ownership is not just washing your hands and telling people do whatever you want to do. That accountability is a critical part of it and helps people grow and thrive in the organization as well. So it's really important. Now, I loved the fact that you touch on some of the shift and challenges ahead. I've read a lot of books, had podcast conversations, and truly believe that if we think the past two years were disruptive, we are in for a surprise because the next five will be a lot more disruptive. So what are the shifts that you see happening and what role does having a conscious culture and workplace play in organizations being able to adjust and thrive through those shifts? If I had a real crystal ball about what was going to happen in the next five years, I'd be super, super rich. (laughs) We know that demographically, we've got Gen Zs, more and more of them coming into the workplace. And we've got the great resignation, the quiet quit. We've got war in Ukraine. God only knows when that's going to end. So I think going back to, first of all, what we talked about a bit about being intentional, but Really making sure that as a leader, you're reading about everything that's changing, that you recognize that the way you did things before is not going to be the way it is in the future. I do think that change is just going to be constant. And we've said this now for a really long time, but change at this accelerated pace and living in tremendous amounts of uncertainty. Before, even though we would talk about change, there was a certain amount of stability that we expected in the world around us, and we don't have that. So even talking about burnout and stress, that is contributing. Our social feeds are constantly blowing up. So we're going to have to think about mental health, how that shows up in the workplace. What are we going to do for each other? How are we going to put programs and benefits in place? And I'm not talking about yoga and that stuff. Of course, that's really good. But we do need to think about our workloads. We need to think about, are we giving people the right resources and supports to get the help that they need? Our workloads in particular are just increasing and we can't keep doing more with less. So we have to change that mindset, change that paradigm and really think about 
what are we doing in our organizations that's not adding value that we need to stop doing because it is just not sustainable to keep adding. Folks are going to need to rethink how they're leading in organizations. I think we're going to need to rethink our organization structures. We are going to have to think more creatively that not everyone is going to be an employee. We're going to have to manage a combination of employees and consultants and gig workers and robots and AI and machine. All of this is going to come together. So our managers and leaders are going to have to be much more sophisticated in managing that diversity and also managing the diversity of the workforce. And we might've come into the workforce. It was a little different. Everyone was buttoned up. Everyone wore suits. But now your Gen Z young adults are wearing cutoffs to work. Everyone's got tattoos. Everyone's got piercings. My poor dad, who's 80 something, he's wigging out. <laughs> what is going on? Why aren't people wearing a suit to go out to dinner? I'm like, dad, no, this is the way it is. And that's a silly example. The pandemic really accelerated that dress code shift. And so these are all the things that are going to be happening. The burnout, the stress, the Gen Zs coming in, the org structures, the perfectionism that we keep striving for, all of that is going to have to change. And we're going to have to do it quickly and not sit there wringing our hands on, I don't have time for this. You're going to have to fail fast. You're going to have to try something. If it doesn't work, you're going to have to be transparent about it and keep going. And that's going to be hard. I think we're going to see a lot of implosions of companies. And I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation and companies collapsing. And I do think that there will be a movement or an opportunity really for B Corp to shine. And for I'm hoping that ESG, that with boards really paying a little bit more attention to ESG, that helps to really drive all of this change in organizations. And I know that would be more sort of public company and private companies of bigger companies, but hopefully that will start to cascade down as well. The expectations that employees who are key to the success of any organization have of the organization are very different than the expectations that they had 20 or more years ago. Even five. And the ESG that you mentioned, absolutely, plays a big role in that. So it's not just doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's doing it because it's critical to being able to have the kind of talent you want to have for the organization to thrive and not be one of the ones that implode. So it's going to be critical for that. So as leaders looking at this shift, what practices and or resources do you recommend to them to be able to adjust to this uncertainty and the ongoing crisis better than others? That's a really good question. I think that leaders need to surround themselves with people that don't think the same as them. And we all like to be with people who think the same as us. But I think that many CEOs are in CEO forums and groups and things like that. And I think as they introduce new people into those forums or they join ones, they do need to find people who think differently and who are going to challenge their thinking and who are going to bring some different perspectives to bear. Because I think that will help 
all of us achieve a better outcome. I always think reading is great. I try to read and it's just whatever floats your boat, but really try to read things from different sources. I read The Economist, I read HBR, I read Vox, I read The Washington Post, I read whatever falls into my Instagram feed. I try to just hear different perspectives on what's happening because Spencer reads the tea leaves in slightly different ways and then you have to just take it and do that. And so the more diverse kind of your cabinet is, so to speak, the better I think that they will be informed. The last thing I'll say is just be open. Be open to recognizing that you don't have all the answers, that you are not right all the time, and that the world is different. And that if you don't understand that fundamental piece, you're going to have a really hard time leading. It is a big challenge because the rules of the game are changing at a faster and faster pace, where it's making it really hard, but also really energizing. One of the reasons I enjoy the, doing this podcast, having conversations with authors like you, Shara, is that it forces me to continually <laughs> learn, read great books and learn from it. I think that is going to be critical as the pace of change goes faster and faster. How can the audience find out more about you and your book, Shara? I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably one of the easiest ways to find me. And it's very simple. It's my first name, last name. So Shara Roman, and there's three A's in my first name. They can go to my company website at silverinegroup.com. They can go to the book website, which is shararoman.com. So follow us on LinkedIn, connect, reach out, happy to engage in more conversation. I really appreciate the conversation, Shara, most specifically because what you mention about culture and the examples you give on culture in your book can help people think about it, reflect on it, and make it a practice. Because as you mentioned in the conversation, it's not just intentionality with respect to knowing the kind of culture you want, it's intentionality with respect to the ongoing practices that establish the kind of conscious workplace that you want to have. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation, Shara Roman. My pleasure, Mahan. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.